Very pointedly, the topic of our conversation is not death, but dying, which I want to point to as a process. And it's a process that you help people with. And something that I've been wondering in the weeks leading up to talking to you about it is that it's one of the most natural things in the entire universe. Like it's something that literally everyone does. And yet it's something that it seems that people need a lot of help doing. And I, I, my question for you in as general of a sense or as specific of a sense as you'd like to answer it is what is it that people need help with in dying by and large when you see them? That's a really good question. It's, it's funny. My mind goes two directions where I hear that. And the first thing that I go to immediately that people need help with is letting go. But as soon as I give that answer, as soon as that comes, I sort of get this reminder that in a certain sense, people don't need any help letting go because it's going to happen, you know, at the end of the day. And, and that's why this question about dying as a process rather than death as this static thing is the right question to be asking. And is that's the question I can help with is dying because mm -hmm. death, um, you know, you, you started with it's the most natural thing in the world. And yet, you know, as I've been thinking about it leading up to this and thinking on my whole drive home stuck in traffic, like death is this ultimate mystery. We, we just will never know about death. It is definitionally outside of life. It is not something that can be experienced by any definition of that word. So, they need help with the process. Letting go makes sense as a part of that process. What are some of the parts of the process? Is it, does it happen in an order? Does it always happen in that order? What can you say about no, it? And, and that's the thing that vexes me, and I think that's one of the, the thing that makes this particular job of, of you know being involved in the dying process. There is no objective way for it to happen there is no one two three this happens to everyone I'm, I'm really you know one of the questions that really troubles me when i think about people who have this sort of prolonged dying process and they know weeks months years in advance and they have time to sort of prepare things versus when it just happens to someone um when my mind goes into this this like even thinking the spiritual realm or even thinking what happens in our brain to allow a spiritual sort of thing what is that difference between a, a long process of shutting down which it is in, in what we might call its most natural form the thing that the human body is just going to do at some point versus all of a sudden there's a hole in it and it doesn't work anymore this is a very roundabout way of, of answering your question what are the parts that people need help with letting go um, and all of this is to say that that letting go is, is really the, the ultimate letting go, and it's, it is an ultimate leap of faith, and it is an ultimate act of giving up. When I say possessions, I mean it in that really sort of like Buddhist, I don't want to say cynical sense of the term, but anything that attaches to 
me, my, I, all of that goes. So, you know, it's, it's easy to give up my lamp or my computer. Um, you know, when I'm talking about my partner, my cat, that gets a lot more difficult, but what's even harder than that is my memories mm -hmm. and, and myself. And that's, that's what it is at the end of the day. And, and, you know, looping back to this thing I said at the beginning, I can try and lubricate that process as much as I can, but it's, it's going to happen. It will happen to you. Mm -hmm. Your role in the process is, it is overtly a religious role. Mm. And I would love to hear about that from a lot of different angles. The first one I'm wondering about is how it feels like there's some sort of matchmaking that must occur between like a chaplain and a, and a patient uh, on this basis. And, and, and how does that work for you and for them? It is a, a totally relational thing. So I'll, I'll give some background for our listeners. I am a chaplain. I work on a general medicine service line. I work at a very large hospital in a large inner city with a level one trauma center. The sort of patients who I see on a general medicine line are really few and far between. Um, I see your sort of classic like I don't know, the GI problem. Mm -hmm. But then it's also a lot of things, you know, we have psych patients on our general medicine line, um, people who are dealing with addiction and withdrawal, people who are dealing with homelessness and the various, you know, health problems that entails. Uh, and then I also watch three intensive care units. So I am around dying a lot, but I'm also around life a lot. Mm. And this matchmaking process, the way that it works is, um, you know, we, we start the day with a list of people to see and people to talk to, and that's our starting point. And we talk to our nurses and our doctors, and we sort of suss out who it is that might need a little bit of care. Um, so I should back up and say my, my role as a chaplain in, in the department I belong to is spiritual care department. So when we say spiritual care, we are talking about something that goes above and beyond or below and around mm -hmm. the the physical the mental um it's it's the thing that you know the doctors you know they can help you with your heart they can help you with your brain they can't help you with you know i feel sad today because i miss this thing that i used to see and i don't see it anymore so we go in there and we we help those people on a spiritual level a lot of the times I, I will start on a level that is very much on that ambiguity of the spiritual as opposed to the religious. Mm -hmm. I start with, I'm, I'm here with the spiritual care department. If a person is asking for the chaplain, I'll introduce myself as the chaplain. But it's this total random throwing yourself up to fate and saying, all right, I guess room 814 in Feinberg needs a, a visit today. So that's where I'm going. Um, it's this process of, you know, beginner's minds kind of not taking anything for granted. I'm working with residents right now, and a lot of the training is about how do we strike that balance between I'm going to read this patient's chart and know a little bit about them versus I am forming this idea of them, which is preventing me from being completely present and open to who they are mm -hmm. in this moment. 
And so it's just this like beautiful, mushy process of barging into rooms more or less uninvited and saying, hey, my name's Alex. I'm here with the spiritual care department. How are you doing today? Um, how's it been in the hospital? What is it like for you today? One of the questions that I will ask if I am sensing something in a room, but it's not getting anywhere, is I'll say, what's on your heart today? And we just kind of proceed from there. Are there other chaplains from other religious cultures or denominations or however your department divides it up? Yeah. And is it is it is it like a roster? Does every do you need like a spread of different people or is it sort of whoever is? It no, it's it's very much we, um, you know, we get who applies. And mm-hmm. so the country we live in is a majority Christian country. And so we have a majority of Christian chaplains. Mm-hmm. We have a rabbi on our staff. Um, and then it's, it's me, the Jewish Buddhist. Mm -hmm. I wish we had a roster of various religions. I sort of, because of who I am, I often am the like quote unquote interfaith chaplain. Uh So if they're like, you know, I've, I've had patients where it's, oh yeah, this family, like they practice a shamanic ancestral tradition. Can you go see what's going on? And it's like, all right, I'll do that. Is there a point where it becomes more religious for you, like, I'm sure that some of these other people with their own, like their with their like clergy training probably are more formal about it. Is there a point where it go where it goes into the realm of like tradition and, you know, s- scripture and stuff like that? Like, like, where in the process does that come up for you? It comes up at various times with various people. And I, I, I hate to be or to sound cagey about it, but it's, God, it's so, you know, it's so different for each person. Like, you know, I had someone last week who was a quite religious person and not the same religion as me. And that started off with her curiosity about what God was telling her. Mm -hmm. And so I had to meet her at that level pretty much right away. And it, it got into scripture and we were, you know, talking about what verses could mean. And, and obviously, or maybe not obviously, I do not have that Christian background. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm being honest, I should know a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But I don't, you know, I don't have scripture to go to beyond. I have, a, you know, Psalms I'm familiar with, and mm-hmm. I love Ecclesiastes, and there's, you know, Sermon on the Mount in your classics. Um, but it is a matter of reaching to a, a commonality and when I can get on that level and do it's a very what's the the adverb I'm looking for here it's a translatory kind of experience when I can crack the code and figure out what they are expressing to me and whatever words they're using that's where it gets to that religious point you know I, I had this uh, patient who I saw today and it it was just a really lovely visit, just a very sweet guy, very positive um, guy who I've seen before. And I just felt really good leaving it. And I just like that. That was religious for me mm. because that was like, this was a nice, just a nice thing to happen. That doesn't happen all the time in the hospital. What about, I, I'm not sure if these are two different things or not, but ritual on the one hand and prayer on the other hand. I I do pray in a lot of my visits, which maybe makes my last answer sound kind of funny. Hmm. I I will so let me talk about prayer first maybe. I grew up 
in a conservative Jewish household. Uh, prayer for me was in Hebrew, and it was, in my own experience, a very meditative sort of thing, and that's more of a function of me not understanding what the words meant. And so it was this thing of, you know, I have to, you know, sit in the shul at 4 p.m. and go through this whole Kaddish and um, I might as well get familiar with the crevices of my mind while this is happening. So that's my my basis for prayer is that reflective sort of place and, and being in a sacred mental space. With that as my basis and not having any sort of background in, in a prayer as a request, a prayer mm-hmm. as, an, mm-hmm. as an ask, I have been trained by some very wonderful prayers in uh, you know, the Pentecostal tradition and in the evangelical tradition. And the things that I have picked up from those prayers are these very poetic turns of phrases and this very attentive care where one of my supervisors had this incredible ability where all he needed to do was he would ask the patient, what do you think needs to be heard in this prayer? And he would turn it into this amazing poetic thing where um, it not only made you feel good on this sort of heart and aesthetic level, but it also made it very clear that this man has been listening to you for the last 15, 30, 45 an hour. And so my prayer comes from his teaching. And when I use prayer, a lot of the times it comes from a place of silence. And I mean literal silence of we've been talking and now I don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. And... By this point in a visit, I know that this person is religious and this person has maybe mentioned to me that they like prayer and they like people praying for them. And then that's when I come in with the, you know, I'd like to pray for you. What do you think needs to be heard in this prayer? Mm. And I always say I like to take a deep breath and feel my body before I pray. Prayer in this context for me, the way that I use prayer is this moment of shared communal mindfulness. And it has produced really such amazing spiritual and religious experiences for me to offer that recognition. I think one of the places where I most find the divine in my day-to-day life in this particular job is in this moment of recognition and in bringing to light this thing that has been with this person for who knows how long, because I think that's a very rare thing in a lot of our day-to-day lives. As for ritual, The first place my mind goes, I'm sort of blowing in the wind so much of the time because it is so infrequently that I will see a patient who asks for a ritual with which I am familiar. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't see very many Buddhist patients. I see some Jewish patients sometime, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the times I will joke with them. They're like, yeah, you know, I have a Hebrew school education, but that's about all you're getting. And I'll, I'll say a prayer for them, but that's about where it goes there. But I think to a patient who I saw once where I was all alone at the hospital and they were asking me to come and pray a rosary with them. And I get up there and it is a Spanish speaking family and they are doing an entire rosary for the patient, their family who's in bed. 
And, you know, of course, I get so self-conscious and my heart is going because in that moment, it's like, you know, you want to be the Catholic priest who can show up and they're expecting a spiritual authority and here I am. And you just have to go with it. You just have to go with it and accept that there is a ritual happening. And I had to ground myself in this spiritual humbleness and this, this bridging and this translation and this really being cradled in my own faith that we are firing on some shared wavelength here. And I can, I can go on for hours about whether or not we're talking about the same thing when we, when we pray in different languages. But in that moment, it was this really profound experience of, of this uh, prayer to something that I've never worshiped in a language that I've never spoken and yet they welcomed me wholeheartedly into it for, you know, 10 whole repetitions. You know, we, we were doing this thing for a while. Um, so I'm privy to some amazing ritual like that. And, and we can be called in to do things like we've, we've officiated marriages in ICUs before. Wow. One place ritual comes in a lot is in, in baptizing of uh, babies that are lost and that is a very heavy ritual and it's also a very very beautiful one and one that i've you know i talk a lot about kind of heavy blessings in this job and there are a lot of heavy blessings like that there's one more piece of this that i want to ask about that i feel like comes from maybe even like media depictions of chaplains with people who are dying it feels like there's this understanding in the, maybe it's even just like the American overculture across cultures that like it's time to pray. Like there's a point, there's a point where somebody's, you know, really on their way and the, and somebody like says, go get the chaplain. Like, is it, is this a real thing? Oh yeah. And, and, and tell, tell me what the real version of it is like. Yeah, no, that that absolutely does happen. In the sort of most dramatic version of that, I, I had a time where I got rushed down to the ICU and it was a father who was actively dying and the whole family's in the room. And when I say like wailing, I mean like literally wailing to the point where the daughter like fainted, like passed mm-hmm. out. And in that moment, I don't, want to sound crude about this but for me in that moment what i could provide in that situation was more stability than anything else providing a container for these emotions making this room a safe space for whatever needs to happen we it's funny you know our job is almost if we're doing a good job, that stereotypical image of the chaplain who gets rushed down, if we do a good job, that won't happen. The most stereotypical call the chaplain is when there's someone who's really freaking out. And it doesn't even have to be about death necessarily, just mm-hmm. a lot of the time it could be a diagnosis or it could be a conflict that's escalating with a care team. Um, it could be really any number of things. In the course of your life, there will be a lot of things that will feel like death and that are in a very real and very significant way are death. Um, I think 
we as a culture do not have an appreciation for death on, I was going to say on a number of levels, but I think more accurately, it would really be on, on any level. I don't think we really appreciate what death is and what death means. I see people die all the time and they keep, they walk right out of the room, right? I think the more that we can be aware of that, the better we can attend to that fact. And when we can approach things with, I don't want to say a lightness because it's, it's not, lightness is not the right way to put it, but there is actually the instant I said that it's like, you know, I was thinking lightness in terms of weight heaviness, but lightness in terms of luminosity, you know, there, there is a lightness to it. There is a light to it. There is a really profound beauty in that fact, in that sort of unstoppable rushing torrent of death that just will happen. You know, there, there is literally nothing you can do. And it has happened to not only every human being, but every animal, every anything, anything that has ever lived will die. You've probably already done it. You might not be aware of it, but but I'm sure that you have died by now. If you're listening to this podcast, you've, <laughs> you've experienced death at least once. 